This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Hi, Lena. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. It's my pleasure. I love to see uh, fellow Vietnamese doing things in the media, you know, and podcasting is like the new thing. So this is awesome. It's new for us. It's a, a relatively uh, untapped segment. And I hope more people will get into it because we need to amplify um, the stories. Right. Um, I start with every episode with sort of what is your evolution of being Vietnamese, the the word, the term, the idea of being Vietnamese to you? Um. Well, that's uh, that's kind of hard to, to put it all together. But I, I think that everyone has an evolution, whether, you know, you evolve as just a human being or an American or a Vietnamese or a woman or a mom or a dad, right? Everyone eventually evolves. There's an evolution that goes on as you grow older because uh, then you experience more things and hopefully actually your thoughts and your opinions also change. Um, I grew up well, like with no Vietnamese friends, you know, I, I was in Minnesota and um, no Vietnamese friends. Back then there were hardly any stores. There was like one Asian store. So it's not like it is now. And it certainly wasn't like it was in California or Texas and areas with um, a bigger uh, Vietnamese population. So everything that I learned how I, ident I identified as a Vietnamese girl all had to do with my parents. Um, and so I think that as I grew older and I experienced more and got more Vietnamese friends and experienced more about the community, or maybe it's just my age, I don't know. But as I grow older, like I wanna, I wanna go, go back, back to it. I wanna hold on to it. You know, and yeah. I'm, I'm very aware that as time goes on, um, if we don't learn and then pass along what we learn about the Vietnamese experience, it gets lost. Just like the World War II veterans, like they're dying every single day. We're losing them. And so there's that part, part of, of our, our history, history that I think is really important to um, hold on to and, and make sure that, you know, my kids know about it and, and their children will know about it. So as I grow older, I just feel like I want to be more Vietnamese. Why do you think that's so important to us? Well, it should be. I'm, I'm not sure that it's important to everybody. Um, but, you know, if, if it's not important and no one takes the charge, like if you don't tell the Vietnamese story, we're going to lose it. You know, it's it might be something kids read about in books, but that's a shame. It It should be it should be a culture that will continue to always exist. Now it may not and will not actually look and sound the way it does now, just like right. 
today doesn't sound or look like it did 40 years ago. But if we don't, if we don't hang on to it, if we don't pass it along, there will be no more Vietnamese, right? And and I just, I mean, I can't even think of a day that that is like that. But if we don't do the things like you're doing now, uh, there will be that day. Do you remember when you left Vietnam? Uh, I don't. I just know stories. I mean, I was five years old. And I don't know if it's the human brain. You know, you hear that when you experience traumatic things that you don't really hang on to it. I only have like really one vague memory. Now, we left uh, at the end of April before the, the fall of Saigon. And I've heard stories. I, I often hear my mom and dad talking about it. And, you know, when they got together with friends, talking about how, how they got out. I only have one vague memory. And it was being handed down to... Um, a U.S. serviceman, and and it ju- it's the only real memory, a real memory that I have, um, and it might be why I have such a a soft spot in my heart for for uh, our our troops. But that's the only memory I have. Everything I know is from stories, right? Stories that I heard my parents tell, and then and then came the documentaries and the books and and the movies, and it was always actually very upsetting for me to watch it. I. I don't understand why I get so emotional about it, but I, I do. Uh, and it's not from, even though I experienced it, I don't tie it to personal experience. Maybe what we saw on screen growing up as Americans weren't really what what we felt were the essence of our own people, right? It's so skewed what what's presented. Right. And, and the thing is, you know, even though like, you know, war stories are, are never happy, right? But sometimes you feel like it's missing something. Like if you just tell one part of the story, well, what about the rest of it? What about how we resettled in different countries throughout the world and became outstanding citizens that contributed to the societies that they lived in? You know, that like sometimes if you just tell one part of the story, it can be so upsetting that that's why you need to tell more stories. You know, like, yeah, we need to talk about the war. We need to talk about what happened and how it ended and how people escaped. We also need to talk about where are we today? What have we been able to accomplish? You know, uh, so like I said, all stories are so important. There are so many Vietnamese that arrived in Paris uh, in the 50s that I had no idea. Three months ago, I started this podcast three months ago. I had no idea that there was a huge body of of Vietnamese that were living in Paris. Yeah, I've heard that. And, you know, I, I didn't realize this, but we have um, relatives on my, my mom's side. And uh, she has a relative who, you know, went to Russia back in the, I don't even know what year, but way, way back when. And it's like, you don't even think about it. Like no, Vietnamese no. living in Russia, right? What was it living for you um, in, you said Minnesota, right? What was that like growing up? Wow. Well, uh, we were one of the six, one of the first six Vietnamese families to resettle in Minnesota. And if you know anything about Minnesota, to go from Vietnam to Minnesota, right, is a complete uh, culture shock. Um, But I grew up very differently from how a lot of Vietnamese kids grew up. I had no Vietnamese friends. There were no, there were hardly any Asians in the high school that I went to. Um, there were no schools that taught Vietnamese like there are now. 
everything I learned, I was self-taught. I learned at home. Um, you know, back then you couldn't even, you know, you know, uh, so it was different. But what I really appreciated about growing up in, in Minnesota was that they were curious about us. They wanted to know about my culture. I didn't see or experience any kind of like discrimination or racism. And I really didn't see that until I moved out here to California. Um, so, you know, I, it was different. It's probably why I speak English the way I, I do. People ask me all the time, did you go to special classes to learn how to speak English? Well, yeah, it's called growing up in Minnesota. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't have not have grown up in a more white environment. So, so that's how I, I, I speak the way I do. Um, but it was different. You know, everything I know now, I learned as an adult. When like did, even my Vietnamese, like I love Vietnamese, love it. But I only have enough Vietnamese, nếu mà nói chuyện ở nhà, you know, nói chuyện với bạn bè is okay. But for an interview like this, like I don't know some of the, some of the words. Right. So I, I wouldn't be able to express myself the really way I, I'd, I'd like to express myself, which is such a shame. I, I wish there were Vietnamese schools uh, when, when I was a child where I was. How old were you? Because I obviously have followed you on Facebook for many years, and I see the different sort of like the the groups of people that you hang out with and are, that are very Vietnamese. When did you actually start getting into more close contact with the Vietnamese community? Well, it wasn't until after I moved to um, to Los Angeles that I that I actually had you know. And as bad as social media can be, if it wasn't for social media, I wouldn't have most of the Vietnamese mm. friends that I have. Um, but I mean, I, I learned Vietnamese because of music. I love Vietnamese music. Even though like back in the 80s, I used to sing. And I always, they always, you know, I always knew wave because because my pronunciation and I was young and, right. but I love Vietnamese music. But my taste in Vietnamese music is very old school because mm -hmm. it's the songs that I heard my mom yeah. singing, right, as I was growing up. And I would, I would want to learn the song. So I would, you know, jap loi the way I think it should be written out and my mom would correct me. And that's how I learned how to uh, read and write Vietnamese. Um, and then when I started traveling and touring with the band, I would meet the Vietnamese entertainers. And that's how I learned how to speak Ding Nam because my family is from um, from Quanti, okay? So as I was growing up in my in my household, strictly is Quanti uh, accent. I don't know if, if you know anyone you know, Wow. And then people would laugh at me. And I always tell my parents, I said, you got to tell your friends not to laugh at children who are learning Vietnamese because they'll take it personally. Like my youngest brother, you know, he was a few months old when he, when he came to America. He speaks Vietnamese, but he hates being laughed at. Yeah. Um, but so through my association with some of the singers, I learned to um, speak less young so that people could understand me. So now when I speak, sometimes people can't place where my accent is. They be, sometimes it's thing nam, sometimes I sound a little thing back, and, and sometimes I can't help it. You know, young, 
to get stuck in there. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, when I came here to Los Angeles, of course, being close to Orange County and going down there and meeting some friends on, on uh, Facebook, now I have more Vietnamese friends and I learn a lot uh, through, through my friends. But when you were in high school um, and you were going through your formative years, did you ever feel like the other sort of the other culture or? Oh, yeah. Oh, and it was well before that. It, it didn't, it, we, I didn't have to wait to high school to feel that. I knew growing up that I was different. I'll give you an example. As a Vietnamese girl, I've never been to a slumber party. Okay, when kids have sleepovers, which is like the thing when you're young, never. Why? It's because you're a Vietnamese girl. You're not going to go sleep over at someone's house. It's totally improper. So I was the kid who would go to the my best friend's Chris, uh, birthday party, you know, eat, have cake, and then my parents would pick me up. I'd go home. Everyone stays for the fun slumber party. So I knew I was different. My parents were very, very strict. Um, they placed high value on education, okay? And I grew up differently. I mean, we we started with nothing when we came to Minnesota. So, you know, thinking about kindergarten, first grade, we were saving money. We weren't, and, and we lived in a nice area, but everything was, you know, conserving, right? right? You got to save, you got to save. And so I, I started thinking, boy, my friends, my white friends sure are spoiled. You know, they were complaining about stuff that I was like, wow, yeah. because I didn't have those things, um, including not just material things, but also including like freedom, that so many kids had that I didn't. So I knew I was different. I could have rebelled, but I didn't. Uh, and I think it did me some good. I mean, I, I wouldn't change how I grew up. Although if I look back at my life now, and I'm now 51 at the time of this interview, <laughs> if I look back, I wish I would have let go of some of that conservative nature that it's okay to say yes. It's okay to go out and have fun. But in my head, it was always, would this make mom and dad proud? Would this make mom and dad happy? Am I being frivolous? Should I be worrying about this instead? So I grew up like that, and I'm, I'm still like that. But do you do you think that's a, a sort of a, a nurture versus nature issue? I mean, you're probably, I, I don't know what your other siblings are like, but maybe that was something that's inherent inside of your own personality. Or do you think your parents had something to do with that? That uh, oh, sort of. No, uh, I think absolutely my parents had something to do with it, um, because because like now my kids are this way. Okay, so you know once you're a parent, you can really more clearly see right. how much influence you have over another human being's life and and in shaping that person. So um, my kids have things that I never had when I was young. I like that because now I'm I'm able to provide for them what what I didn't have, right? So I'm really I'm happy about that. At the same time, even though sometimes I was sad, especially as a teenager crying that that I couldn't do anything, I couldn't go anywhere because my parents were so strict, but I'm that way right now with with my kids. And I have to learn to pull it back and and let them have a little more freedom, right? Um and stuff that I didn't have, but Absolutely, your parents have so much influence on who you are. But what about this whole idea of like, um, I have kids too, and I think about this all the time. Is it a fine line 
where the reason why our generation is so ambitious is because of those sort of repressed, the oppressed sort of cultural norms that they put on us. And if we don't sort of do that for our children and create these sort of artificial boundaries or these artificial pressures, that it's, the ambition is going to be lost. And I think part of our second generation sort of ways that we approach life and career is because we've been sort of pressured so much. And if we don't do that to our children, what if they lose that and they just become these sort of people who are just not really ambitious? Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, of course, that, that, that makes a difference. Um, the, the thing is, though, that sometimes we have to kind of get away from the real old school thinking, like my parents, of course, just like many Asian parents, not just Vietnamese, doctor, lawyer, engineer, those really were the only three options. So when I said that I wanted to do what I wanted to do, it was it was kind of a, you know, yeah. especially back then, it's like, what? But if we don't let them have a little more freedom, then you're not going to find representation. Right. You're not right. going to find Vietnamese who want to get into entertainment. And we need that because sometimes our parents fail to uh, recognize the influence of industries that aren't your typical, you know, successful Asian, you know, like doctor, lawyer, engineer, right? So, so we need to let go of some of it, but it's that push to, if you're going to do that, and this is exactly what my dad told me, actually, fine. If you're going to do that, do that, but be the first Vietnamese girl to do it in a big way. You know, it was like, okay, fine. Yeah. We'll let you do that, but you better be the best that you can be at it. And it's still that push. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to look at it because I struggle with that all the time. I um, I was raised in a very Catholic family and, you know, repressed and ambitious, uh, you know, in, in ways that only uh, refugee parents can be. But, you know, looking back now, my children, I'm, I, I constantly debated, was, is it healthy? So, but yeah, you're right. I think pushing them to do, go do whatever you want, but be the best at it. And I think that's still a, a wonderful um, approach. Um. What kind of work were you thinking about getting into when you were growing up? TV news. Um, I, when I was little, I never really watched TV. One, my parents kind of didn't allow it. Um, but the one thing that my parents would let me watch was the news. So I would go to bed at eight o'clock because that was bedtime. And then at 10 o'clock, my mom would come and tap me, wake me up so I could go turn on the news and watch it. Wow. I just had this. Oh. And so this I'm talking seven, eight years old. And I wanted to be like, you know, the people I saw on TV is like, oh, my gosh, they're so smart and they know everything that's going on. And I really had this hunger for knowledge. Like, I want to know what's going on outside of right outside of this little area. I want to know what else is going on out there. And I always um, saw it as providing a public service. Because to me, I was like, I depended on the news, right? I watched it for weather. I watched it for what's going on in the world, even as a very, very young girl. So I've always wanted to to be uh, a reporter when I was young. I think the only person at that time, there was no Asian male. Um, it was Connie Chung. Right. 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 And I'll tell you what, when I went to school for it, 
I can't tell you how many teachers and professors talked me out of it. Yeah, they said, okay, it's great that you want to do this, but you're a woman and you're Asian. So maybe you want to think about doing something else. So then, so then I don't know if that's the way they teach, like preparing me for how cutthroat the industry is. Yeah. But back then, you're right. It was just Connie Chung. Um, and even when I got my first job in Augusta, Georgia, Augusta, Georgia, I would knock on people's doors and I'm, I'm not kidding. And they weren't kidding. They thought I was Connie Chung. It was like, oh, you're the Chinese girl on the TV. And it was just the way they thought. And I never took it personally. Um, but I knew that, you know, this, it, it, I knew we needed more Asian faces on TV. Now it's a whole different thing. I can't tell you how many young Asian women want to be on the news for the wrong reasons. <laughs> um, and, and really that you can't, you're not really going to succeed in this industry if all you want to do is be on TV. Yeah. Yeah. That's sort of our influencer, uh, Instagram generation. But what actually inspired you to think about, um, other than, you know, watching it on the news, like what actually thought made you think that this was going to be a possibility for you? Well, I didn't, I didn't know that it was going to be a possibility. Actually, it was just really a dream. Right. And then, um, I was, I always did very well in my English classes and my writing classes. And, um, when I was young, teachers would say, you know, and to them, I think that they were impressed that there's this Asian girl in their class who, I mean, I blew everyone away. I would write, I just, I loved writing. And I think that one thing that is very, um, I think kind of, when people say, you know, what's the most important thing? Writing to me is the most important thing. Writers in the news business are worth their weight in gold. Good writers, and you don't have to be in the news because good writing will take you far in just about every single industry you can think of. Even when you don't think it has anything to do with it, think about it. You know, even if you get into insurance, yeah. I mean, it's really the way you express yourself and yeah. how you deal with people. So I knew that I had a knack for language. I knew that I had a knack for writing. And so as I heard my teachers and as I could see, and I didn't even try, I know that sounds awful. Like school was such a breeze for me. Like I didn't, I didn't have to study. I took tests and I, I was just sailing through and I loved writing and it was never work. And then the other thing, Ken, is that my parents were so strict. I couldn't like go to friends' houses. I couldn't stay after school. I couldn't do extracurricular activities. So I loved school and I hated summer vacation mm -hmm. and I hated winter vacation because it meant I couldn't be around my friends. Oh, yeah. So I thrived in school. You know, it reminds me of um, when I was a young person and I had a, I still have the mentor still in my life. I asked him like, what's the difference between, you know, going to college, not going to college and what's the different, you know, IVs. And he said, really the difference, the major difference is uh, in the amount of reading each institutional level requires of you. Right. He broke it down. It's very simple at Harvard, Stanford, you know, the amount of reading and the comprehension that you have to do is like at a, at a very high level. And it made me think about what you just said about 
being able to write or do English properly um, or to communicate. Because at the end of the day, if you're at a higher learning institution and you're understanding what you read and you're reading a lot and you and you can actually process it, that's really the only thing that matters wherever you go in life, right? Absolutely. The news, the film business, whatever you do, it's just critical thinking, the ability to, to think about something, read it, process it, synthesize it, and then put it down on paper. Absolutely. You're right. Mm -hmm. um, so with that knowledge and that, and that skill set of, of being pretty, uh, doing pretty well in academic, academics for you when did it sort of like cross over in your mind that okay well being on on air being on in on the screen is an important thing that you can get into um i don't know that it, it ever really did again it was just I, I so loved to watch the news and i loved watching 60 minutes and i loved a lot of the investigative stuff so i have a real old school news mentality i always have and in fact part of what led to me leaving the business is that it, the industry has changed so much. You know, it's not, it's not what I remember it to be. It's people all say all the time, it's not what I signed up for. And indeed that was really how I felt at the end of it. Um, but I always, I also have this thing where, like I was saying before, uh, this providing a public service, like I want to help people and if that means bringing the news to you, if that means informing you, letting you know what's going on, doing a story on consumer stuff, you know, if, if it means being able to help someone in some way, that's what I wanted to do. And back then I thought that if I was able to broadcast to a lot of people and tell them a story, you know, and again, the news industry has changed so much and news in Los Angeles is, is like no other, uh, no other market. Again, I grew up in Minnesota. So the news was really the news back then. Right. Um, and so that's, I think that's part of it is, is wanting to help people wanting to be of service to people. And, and to me, being a journalist was that, you know, I think we're going to have to jump in ahead of ourselves here because I, this is a, it gnaws at me. It, it's a gnawing question that I have and we'll get into sort of how you broke into the business and all, but how has the news changed? Oh, well, I mean, I know now that my friends who are still in the business now hate the term fake news. And I do too. I don't want to be associated with it. But I think a lot of it is actually not warranted. The majority of journalists I know work really hard. They try to get it right. They don't go out there with an agenda. But sometimes it's the few bad apples, right? And then that's what everyone remembers. Um, but behind the scenes, what's changed now is that it used to be you start in a small market, you work your butt off, right? You make your mistakes, you learn. And then if you get lucky and then you move around and then maybe you make it up to, to a, a larger market. These days, it's the bottom line. Who's going to do it for cheaper, right? There was a time where TV news was amazing. And I know this because I was, I've always said to my friends, we are so fortunate to make the kind of money that we do without really lifting a finger. There are plenty of people who are breaking their backs out there who don't make a fraction of what we make. So let's be careful where we complain, right? You got to kind of put everything into yeah. perspective. But 
now it's, um, you know, people who are making much less, people who are coming out of school. And now you can actually get a job in a top 10 market straight out of school. That was unheard of back then. So now you've got green people, right, working in larger markets, broadcasting to more people, and they don't have the experience. So they don't have the same kind of one credibility, uh, credibility, integrity, or responsibility, I think, of a seasoned journalist, right? And and a lot of times you don't you don't learn that stuff yeah. in school, you learn it through life experiences. I'm sorry. What? Why is that being allowed? Why are these people being plucked out of sort of obscurity or and lifted into the spotlight so quickly? Well, and, and I think social media is, is a lot to blame is on social media. Like, what is the news? What is news anymore? Most of what you see these days, I mean, you know, aside from the politics stuff, news stations are competing with social media, right? Everyone wants to be that viral video. Everyone wants the click, right? So then now it's, it's about well, how many people can we just pull in, whether or not you deliver whether or not there's substance in that story. So now you're looking for people who are more like influencers, people who are you know, great at tweeting or Instagramming or doing all that. And then the whole art really of journalism, right? That whole, the, I mean, it's a, the, the crafting of the story right. gets lost. So it's people who will do the work for less. You're just filling a little bit of space. And then you've got all these companies who it's got bottom line, bottom line. Uh, you got to cut the budget and uh, you know, you, you cut all the high salary people. And if you're going to bring someone in who really doesn't know what they're doing, you're going to save a ton of money. But then I think the the product at the end really suffers. Yeah. The depth's not there anymore. The, how deep the, the stories and how critical um, the angles are, are, are they're being doled out just like the music business too. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, if you look at yeah, you're you're right about that. My taste in music has always been really, I think, old. Like you know, I feel like I was born in the wrong decade. But sometimes I look at the music today, and I'm like, what? And then is that really talent? And then you go and you see someone live, and it's like, oh my gosh, they they actually can't sing. Yeah. But now they're super super famous because of you know all the, I don't know, like artificial, you know, the marketing. Uh, and, and so the performance part of it is is lost. Yeah, you you go back to you go to Vietnamese music and you listen to the craft of the the, the actual lyrics that that you know Pham Zui oh. or Van Cao or Kim Kung Sung when you oh, Jin Gong yeah their lyrics and I, I'm not uh, I wouldn't profess to know everything about it but the, you know you go back to those years and you compare it to sort of like. The, the new wave of, um, no, I don't mean new wave, the, the new um, music in Vietnam um, that's sort of um, on the heels of K-pop and it's a little bit uh, more glitz and mm-hmm. it's just different and it's... Well, and then, you know, but some of that also is for experience. Like if you're a, uh, if you're an artist, if you're a, a composer or a writer, a lot of that comes from mm-hmm. like personal pain experiences, right? Um, and so back in the day, especially during wartime oh, yeah. and, and, and when, um, when romance wasn't all about, you know, romance, like it's not really romantic anymore these days, but they lived in a different time, different experiences. Uh, and now it's about just kind of cranking it out, right? 
whatever you can crank out, whatever's popular today, rather than really sharing something that's in your heart, I think. I think though rappers in Vietnam though are going through sort of a golden era right now mm -hmm. uh, because they're they're actually speaking about things and things that are meaningful. I mean, it's the irony of it. It's <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh the rap music in Vietnam is, you know, people, you know, the young rappers are writing about things that that are important and, you know, that's where you're getting some real grit, uh, some gritty Isn't that amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a really, but like you, you, you compare. <laughs> I don't mean to go from Vietnamese rap to the beach, but you know, you go to the music like the Bee Gees or um, the mu music of the era that sort of in the '70s and the '80s in America and the late huh. like the Carpenters, you know. Mm. You know, and I don't know how much of that. I don't. How old are you? Uh, I'm 45. Okay, so you're kind of my age, a little bit, a lot younger. But I don't know how much of that is because we grew up and like in our childhood, child, childhoods have changed. You know, we're living in a different time. So when we look back to the 80s, I mean, that's like so nostalgic and like you hear the music and you're thrown back there. Right. But lyrics made sense. <laughs> you could guess what the word is. Yes. The next words are because it told a story. Right these days anymore i have no idea what they're saying you can't like what that doesn't even make sense but i don't know how much of that is we just love being thrown back in time and and just like our parents if our parents listen to old music it's got to bring back right the feeling of that time i always vowed never to be that guy but i am that guy today yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah um the the uh what you had mentioned earlier about augustus so right after high school what i mean during high school did you intern at any local radio or tv stations i mean how did how did you actually step foot into it well i um i no not during high school i did intern when i was in college and i interned at an nbc station in st louis the hardest thing is getting your foot through the door right i, I remember would... thinking okay i'm going to graduate. How do I get a job? That's like the toughest thing you can think of. So this is what happened. And it. Th I've always thought that there are plenty of people with talent. Okay. There are a lot of people who have what it takes. Yes. The difference is that opportunity needs to meet mm. that talent. Otherwise, it's going to be lost. And sometimes opportunity is more important than talent. So if you have talent, you really need the opportunity. So keep your eyes open and recognize them for what they are, because it's not always a, here's a job. It could be just a connection or something. So I interned and one of the reporters at the NBC station I interned at had a friend who was a news director in Augusta, Georgia. And he said, Lena, I told my friend Brian that you're going to send him a, a resume tape. Okay, so for this for this business, you have to have a resume tape. I was in college. Wow. I had no resume. So what did I do? I stayed up, I think, like almost 48 hours straight and put together a fake resume tape, which in our industry, that's, that's you know, it's what you're supposed to do. So I wasn't doing anything bad. Right. But I put together a fake a resume tape with the stuff from the station I was interning at. 
Okay, so I would take a story, rewrite it, because I didn't want to just copy someone else's work. I would rewrite it, and I would have an editor help me edit it. And I would now be the new reporter for this story. Sent it off. They call me up. They actually hire me over the phone even before I graduated from school. Doesn't happen anymore. The, the, like no one would believe that. Um, and that's how I got I got my first break. And it was knowing someone who knew someone and then just pushing myself, even though I was freaking out that I didn't have a resume tape. Well, that's an impressive story. I mean, <laughs> yeah, opportunity. I mean, it's really luck, right? A lot yep. of this stuff is luck. Yeah, and there's well, so many good people in the entertainment business. You know, uh, I've so, talked to so many people who, who don't believe in luck. They say there's no such thing as luck. I believe in luck. And I believe in something that, that I think is bigger than luck, and that is, um, I don't know if it's karma or it's what you throw out there in the universe and, and what you receive. And I think I've learned from a very young age from my parents that uh, the more you do for other people, so the more you mm. give, the more you will receive. So I've always felt fortunate that that someone up there is looking out for me because th there are many people who have what it takes. There are, there are people who are, you know, more beautiful. There are people who are smarter. There are people who are richer. It just, you need that little bit of fortune um, to, to open yourself up to opportunities. And then you got to take that opportunity Right, I've learned to never say never. Like I, um, I was actually hired as a medical reporter. Hate needles, don't like the nothing with medicine. But I was hired as that. Two weeks after I was hired, the weekend anchor got sick, and I was the only one who was available. So what did they? They pushed me up to anchor, one night, and and that was it. It was stuck. Wow. So they asked me to do that, and then I've anchored ever since. And, and not everyone who gets into this business ends up being an anchor. So again, it was just an opportunity. And so I was fortunate. What is an anchor? Uh, so an anchor is the person who sits, uh, you know, when you turn the TV news on and they're sitting at the desk, they'll, they'll read, read stories the and then they will introduce a reporter. So the reporter is the field reporter out on the scene doing live shots. The anchor is the one who gets to stay in the nice warm studio when it's cold and rainy outside <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know sometimes i have to ask questions because um you know a lot of this stuff is i you know it's, it's watched in vietnam and translated sometimes and i i just want to sort of um ask the right questions sure. so we can all kind of understand um how long does it typically be take to become an anchor and you know what's the process well it, sometimes you you never i mean i there are plenty of people who never who never anchor, like their whole career is field reporting. And some people have no desire to anchor. Mm. Um, I remember, you know, my mom would always, like, she didn't like it when I was at the scene of a, a murder. I used to get texts from my mom saying, I can't believe you said that. What if the murderer comes after you? She was always very concerned about me. Um, or when I'm reporting on a brush fire, right? Of mm. course, I'm gonna get as close to that fire as I can because that's the best video. And my mom would always be so worried about me. So for most of my career, my parents always lived in a different state. It's only when they visited that they would see me on TV and, and worry about me. Um, but, you know, there's really no, like, steps. Some people never anchor. Like me, I got lucky. Two weeks later, I was an anchor into my career. 
And then uh, otherwise, people who do want to anchor would be a field reporter first, hope for that time where someone gets sick and you get pushed to fill in, right? And if they like you, then you're you're the fill-in person. And if you do it enough, maybe if you move to another station, they may make you the permanent weekend anchor. Or you work the um, early morning shows where you get up at like 2.30 in the morning, right? Totally unnatural. You have no life outside of that. In fact, most people in the news business really don't have much of a life outside of their work. Um, but that that's how it, it normally happens is that, again, either opportunity or just working your way up. Now, when I think of uh, people who appear um, in the anchor position or reporters, I, I think of people who have control over their diction, of the way they pronounce, the way they carry themselves. It's uh, it's all sort of, it feels very um, cohesive. Is that something that you are very aware of at a young age or at a young stage in your career? Or do you, is it something that you work on and you have to kind of build that sort of persona? Um, I think that it's something that, that you work on. Certainly going through school, you learn how to broadcast, right? So you work on your performance. But I think viewers are smart. You know who you like. Like when you watch the news, right? Don't sometimes you watch the news and it's like, you just don't like that person. Like, oh my God, they're being such a like anchor man, right? The movie is so typical. I'm telling you, I've worked with so many people who are exactly Ron Burgundy, like him. I also worked with a person that that he was modeled after. And then there are people who is like, oh, they just see, they come across a little more genuine. Right. Um, obviously, everyone has this um, idea of what news anchors sound like, and a lot of them sound that way. I've always thought that, you know, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to talk to one person. You know, I'm not trying to talk here. Like, you know what I mean? You can see the difference right away. And a lot of people do that because they think that's the way news anchors should sound. I want to talk to a person. Like the best way to tell a story is in how you tell the story. So when I'm looking at a camera and I'm very comfortable, I've never get nervous. There are people in my business who still get nervous every single time they wait to go on TV. It's just the way they are. But I think it's something that you develop. Um, and, and, and I think that the best way, the best way is to just connect with one person, to act as if you're talking to one person. Now, sometimes you do have to be a little more formal, um, but I've always approached it that way, that, you know, I, I want to be talking. I don't want to be reading. And there are a lot of people who just read the news. Yeah, but that's sort of a, a natural sort of um, disposition that you have, because I get I get. I get nervous every time I turn the camera on and it's, I'm only here because I'm, I've just, I can't control my curiosity. I just have <laughs> this immense curiosity for, for, for human beings, especially the Vietnamese. But um, I think that going back to the question that I had for you is uh, it's something that is natural. It seems to certain people, it's either they have it or they don't, right? right. But is it right. also that you can work on, or yes, oh yes, if you can work on it, how do you work on it? Well, uh, I've I've actually mentored and then helped train a, a lot of people, and especially young journalists who have in their mind what they think they should sound like, right? 
I've also, I think, done my part in trying to get people, steer people another way because not everybody can be on TV. Sometimes you don't have the voice, right? It's like for, and I, uh, it's going to sound horrible. It's like a lot of Vietnamese women have uh, a very thin voice. It's very high, right? Um, and I remember working with a person in Sacramento and she wanted to be, do what I do, Vietnamese. And I worked with her, but I knew, I knew it was going to be close to impossible for her mm. to be doing it. I don't think that she looked the part and I don't think that she sounded the part, but she was bright. And I loved the fact that she was persistent in, in getting me to help her and in a way that wasn't very pushy. And I said to her, you know, that you could like work in this, this industry without being in front of the camera. You're a good writer, you know, concentrate on that. There are producers, there are writers, there are shooters and editors. There's so many people who work behind the scenes. So if you love the profession, maybe look at other things. Okay, that was, I don't know how many years ago, 20, uh, maybe 23 years ago, maybe. She ended up, years later, ended up working at KCAL um, wow. as a producer. And, and she, you know, she reminded me, I'm like, oh my gosh, but sometimes you need a good mentor. You need someone to tell you like it is. I talk to students all the time at school. And I think that parents and teachers sometimes do a disservice to children by, by saying, you can be anything you want to be because actually, no, you can't let's face it. So my message is Go for that dream, but you know what? Have a backup plan. Why don't you get better at recognizing what you're good at and then capitalize on that right, right. rather than trying to do something where, where don't, don't tell your kids they can do anything they want because truth of the matter is they can't. Prepare them, tell them to have a backup plan, help them identify their strong points and, and concentrate on that. Uh, so it is something that you can work on, though. So, um, you know, sometimes it's just speech. Sometimes it's what you don't say. So if you tell a story, it's the way you tell the story. You know, so when I do, when I train people and I train like CEOs and even lawyers in, in talking to the media and also just presenting and, and how they use speech in their everyday life and their work, it's how you talk to people. It's so important. I can sit here, Ken, and tell you absolutely nothing of substance. I can, I can tell you nothing you want to know, give you no information, but do it in a way that, that has you doing this, right? right, right. So it's all really in, in performance. And that is something that, that you can learn. But where did you learn that part of it? Where did you learn that sort of intangible aspect of this? Um, for me, it probably is natural, I think. Right? Like, I don't, I never had a problem with it. Uh, for instance, like today, if you see someone going live on social media, you'll know who you want to keep watching. And think about it. They're talking to you. So they're talking to just their phone, right? But there's a difference between people who do it really well because you feel like they're connecting with you 
And then people who are just going live and like, whatever, and you, you scroll on to the next thing. Um, so I think some people just have it. Some people like it. Like, I don't mind just looking at a camera and talking. So like, especially Zoom. If you're doing an interview and you know that someone's going to be watching you at home, I could sit here and just look at you, Ken, right? I could just look at you and, and, and do this. And so I can talk, but then you're not connecting. So if you're looking straight into the camera and you actually, in your head, it's like, okay, I'm talking to Ken and I'm looking at him right now like I'm looking at him, completely different, right? So it's so many things. It's in body language. It's in words. It's in what you don't say, taking your time, using pauses. It's a bunch of things. And if you pull it all together, then you become a really good presenter. It's really about engagement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Really about engagement, human engagement. I always, yeah, just you know, listening to you and just realizing framing and the sort of how you're being, you're connecting with the, the, the camera. It's, it's huge. And that's something that like maybe that person in Augustus sort of picked up right away in the early days, right? But it's it's mind-blowing to me because like straight out of the gate for you, it's something that somebody recognized and you already had it. And it's now it's just like a matter of going and moving forward from that point, right? Yeah. And, and, and you know, here's an, another funny thing. Like I didn't know what agents did in the business. I was young. I had no idea what they did. This is how I moved out of my first job. So then the next battle is how do I get to my next job after my first job? My co-anchor was looking for an agent. And when you do that, you send an agent your tape. And if they like you, they'll take you on. I was on a two shot, okay? So that's when you see both anchors. I was on a two shot, just, you know, the the, the stupid anchor banter where you make talk to each other. And, hit, and the person he was trying to get as an agent liked what he saw in me and called me up. And that's how wow. I got an agent. So Augusta, Georgia's market 110. My next move, I'm thinking, I'm hoping to get up to maybe market 70, which at that point maybe still is Shreveport, Louisiana. That was what I was shooting for. Instead, I got from market 110 to market 19 in Sacramento. Wow. Uh, and then from market 19 to uh, LA, which is market number two. So again, I just think I'm, I'm so lucky that things happen when they did. And and I think that's another thing, whether it's work or uh, per, your personal life, Ken, is that I believe everything happens for a reason. So like good or bad, right? Anything that you've done, yeah. good or bad, if you're happy where you are right now, then it's all worth it. Like I look back and I'm like, gosh, that was awful, but I'm so glad that happened because if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be here where I am today. So So, sometimes you need to make mistakes to get where you want to be. Now the agent finds you after the first market and you move on to the second market, Sacramento, right? Um, How long were you at Augustus? And then what, kind of prompted you to move to Sacramento? Like, why would you make the decision to go, okay, you know, it's a good enough place to end up? Well, when um, Augusta, Georgia was market 110, I was there longer than I should have been um, because I had a boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I loved the small market. I loved all my friends I worked with. We were like a real family. You know, they always say, oh, CBS is a family. No, we really were like a family because we were all out of school, right? You're young, you're, you're struggling together. Such a fun time. Um, so I was there for a year and a half, which is actually a, a long time if, if you really want to want to move. To me, it was a long time. When I went to Sacramento, I signed a four-year contract. And to me, that was a quarter of my life, okay? A four-year contract at that point felt like a prison sentence. Wow. Why'd you sign it? Because I was going from market, you know, 110 yeah. to Sacramento. I mean, not and like not contract. What's that? Why not like a two-year contract, something shorter? Well, oh, well, because when you're in TV news, the longer the contract, you you want a long contract. Ah, got it. Okay. Um, but sometimes you don't. And looking back, I wish I didn't. But then again, everything worked out, you know, nicely. Um, I should have come to Los Angeles a lot sooner than I did, but I was stuck in a four-year contract and they wouldn't let me out of it. So I passed up on LA once and then LA came calling again. Um, and so really it was just fate that after doing four years uh, in Sacramento, I was able to come to, to Los Angeles. But that's a fast move. That's relatively a fast move up in, in the industry. Right. I, I, I want to just ask a weird business question, but sure. from an agent's point of view, why would, uh, I mean, how do they make the money if you're only moving every four years or two, three years? It's not like, how do they make, you know what I mean? Because they make a percentage on your salary. Oh, so it so if you don't work one, they don't make any money. Okay. They make 10%. Although, uh, again, I was lucky. Most agents, agents make 10% of your salary. Oh, wait, in perpetuity and during the whole time you're working? During, during that contract. So That's they want money. you to have a long contract. Oh, wow. But I your thought... contracts have built in raises, right? And then it would be in their best interest to move you up to a, a higher market because then That's... you're making more money. That's the other question I was asking, because if they only make the deal once, how are you being moved around and making money for them? And then the incentive is lost if if they're not moving you around. But I get it right. now. So so they're actually making money on every check that you bring in. Yeah. Yep. Ten percent of your salary. That is a good business. Yes. <laughs> That's a great. Especially business. if you've so, you know, if you have a good agent, if if your agent has like a few good clients, they're making bank. They're making real good bank because they don't have to do anything because after you get signed to Sacramento, that's four right. years that they don't have to do anything, right? Right. Unless, unless you have an issue. Let's say, you know, if you have an issue when you call up your agent, but I was one, I'm always been one of those clients where like, I didn't even know what my agent sounded like or looked like. Cause I didn't, you know, it's like, okay, you guys handle it. And that's that. And what about speaking engagements and, and that sort of work? Is that, do those come through to the uh, agent as well? Uh, no. So, and I probably missed out on a lot of things. I always volunteered my time throughout that whole, I always volunteered my time at CBS, at KCAL, public affairs told me that I was their most requested speaker. I 
on my time off, volunteered my time, emceed events, da, 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 da. And then almost at the end of it, I was, I found out that all of my coworkers were, were taking money each time they went to an event, each time they emceed. And here I am, I was just volunteering all of my time, which is fine. And I love doing it. And I did a lot. It gave me a great, great experience and, and I make great friends. But at some point in your career, you you have to be paid for it. People can't expect you to just volunteer their, your time anymore. And that's difficult now for me to do because I was doing it for so long. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, through my research, I've found out that you were anchoring for two different TV stations. Is that right? CBS and KCAL. Like, how did you find yourself into that um, situation? So that's so, what's called a duopoly. And before like 1999, it was illegal. Like one company couldn't own two TV stations in the same market. Uh, and then when they changed uh, the rules, KCAL 9 was purchased by Viacom, which owns CBS. So we were the first duopoly. It was the weirdest thing. Like no one knew what was going on. It was actually a really, a really scary time to be at both stations because if you're going to combine, well, you know, we thought of it as combining two stations, a bunch of people are going to get fired and a bunch of people did. They came to me and they said, we're going to have you after, you know, doing the show here, we're going to have you run down to CBS and anchor a show over there. And no one had heard anything because we were in two separate buildings. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, my God, they're going to hate me over there because I was the enemy coming in, right? Oh, wow. For the right. people who worked there, I was the enemy. Uh, and, and people did lose their jobs. Uh, and it was, and again, uh, here's another instance where one, you've always heard you don't burn bridges, bridges, right? The way you treat the people you work with, also very important. And do it in a way that's respectful. I'm not saying office politics is awful. So like, don't be kissing ass because that can only get you so far, right? And right. then that the person you're kissing up to, they eventually go away and then and then what? But I was always straightforward and nice to, I didn't, I hated the whole, there's so much drama in a TV station. If they made a show about it, you wouldn't even believe it. You <laughs> would think it's all dramatized. It doesn't even come close to what it's really like. Um, so I knew that they were seeing me as the enemy coming in. Uh, so, but I made great friends and it was a slow process in getting both stations together. It took years to get both stations together into one building, but I was the first person to anchor at one TV station and then go to another one in the same market. It was the weirdest, wildest thing. Yeah, they I just asked me to. Because, but they compete, right? Yeah, yeah, we were, we were competitors. But then now at that point, we were owned by the same company. And so that was the beginning of this. That's the beginning of you now work for two stations, so you've got like a lot more shows to do. And what did the, if you don't mind me asking, did the pay sort of increase or is it the same hours that you put in? Um, no, it wasn't the same hours that you put in. It was, you would have hours, it was more work in the same hours, right? Oh, so wow. there were days where I would anchor eight, nine, newscasts when back in the old day some you have some people who only do two newscasts so that's how much more the workload got and that's where you have to have a good agent who the next time your window comes up the next time your contract comes up will ask and get you more money 
But did you ever bring the same stories or the same pre preparation from one station over to the other? Sort of just verbatim pick up and then bring yeah. the other? Would you uh, do A lot of the reporters did that a lot. And then, um, you know, we went through stages where uh, reporters had to learn how to make it a little bit different, right, for the other station. And then, and then it wasn't either, we no longer looked at it as the other station. It, then it was just another time slot, another newscast, right? Um, and then they would keep the anchors separate so that you had still had two identities and just share reporters. And then it was, we're going to just throw it all together. <laughs> reporters, anchors, whatever, producers. Wow. Everyone was working for both stations. Okay, and that leads me to my next question about identity, station identity. It, it, it just felt to me... Um, especially after the, la the last four years of the uh, previous administration, that station identity, like a CNN or a Fox, you know, in maybe ten years ago, it was such a, it was it was beginning to feel like there were teams, right? There was like you played for this team, you played for that team politically, and they would you know have these identities. But um, is that something that? you know being part of the, the the news industry did had do you feel like that's evolved over the years or has it always been that way but it, it was just more nuanced and more subtle sort of in the early days of you getting into the business well ev everything has changed um so let's say if you're talking about competition right um sometimes when people work for a tv station you feel a loyalty to that network right and some people always stay with that network but the reality is you go where the work is. You know, I went from CBS to NBC um, to an independent, then to CBS again. The, the whole thing with like CNN versus Fox, if you look at it, you probably could see some of the same nuances back in the day, right? But not the way you see it today. Like now, suddenly, especially in the last you know, five years maybe, like TV stations are okay putting opinion out there. Like when was that ever okay? Yeah. That's how the industry has changed. I hate it. Um, and I've become, through the two decades that I was in the uh, business, it's like my job is not to have an opinion. That actually is my job is not to have an opinion. I can't tell you how many people want to tie me down to an opinion. And they get mad if I don't tell them. But that's always been a professional and now a personal policy that no one knows how I think politically. Now, I argue with a bunch of people, mostly on how they presented themselves on both sides. Right. Like, no, no even my close friends don't know how I voted. That's the way I prefer it. And that's the way the news should be. But it's not. And No, it, it's not. It, you know why it's not? It The reason why it's not, and it's the same thing with social media, is because they found an audience for it. They set, they found an appetite for it. As much as we hate it, there is an appetite for being really right or really left. And so if there's an appetite, they're going to feed it. So yeah. who do you blame? You actually blame, blame the public because if you guys wouldn't watch, they'd have to go to something else. Well, do you blame the public or do you blame what I would call right now? I just thought of it. Polarity algorithm. Oh, right. now you're talking smart stuff. 
<laughs> no, I mean, if you think about it, uh, with the advent of computers, with the advent uh -huh. of software, we are, are now understanding polarity cells. Polarity moves the needle. And with the algorithms that these um, social media or probably Nielsen, you know, at the ratings uh, level, they probably understand this idea of shifting polarities. And that is where the dollars are coming in. Yep, you're right. That destroyed... Yep. That's yep. destroying the fabric of society almost. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. And and years ago, I already saw this coming. And, and I remember you know, talking to coworkers and saying, you know what? This, this changes everything. Like the whole landscape of journalism. Not anything that, that when we first signed up for it, it we won't ever go back. Uh, and that happened actually very, very quickly. And it's, it's part of the reason why I got out. There's just so much negativity. Um, and, you know, as a journalist, you're not supposed to, and on the local level, I think it's still this way. You're, you're not supposed to fight back. You're not supposed to respond to anyone. You take it on the cheek. It's like, you know, when people complain, and I've had people complain from both sides. When I called um, President Obama, Mr. Obama, I got so much stuff from people it's like you're not showing him any respect call him president you have a problem with the black president and then when i called uh, president trump mr trump i would get so many emails and tweets and stuff from you know trump supporters who said what you he's not your president why don't you refer to him as and it all came down just to ap style mm, wow that he's the only person we call mr we don't call anyone else mr the president actually has the that that we reserve for the president it's actually a show of respect that it, is it's not so ironic right and 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 the wonderful thing of course now i just screenshot everything and i just bring it all up i'm like hey that's the way we do it this is the way we did it four years ago and this is the person who complained about it then so it's it's fair on both sides but people don't realize the things that we do uh in in journalism they just see and they think something and uh, we're not supposed to respond to it. What are uh, some of the things that you've um, learned on the job that wasn't taught in school or wasn't really in your formal training? Oh, well, you know, school never prepares people for life. It teaches you stuff. Um, but how can you read in a book what it really is like to work in a newsroom? I never knew that one day I would be like, like fighting fight. management on what stories to do or not to do. When I was hired uh, in Los Angeles, at that point, I was the youngest person on air that they'd ever hired. And when I got the job, one, I was happy, two, I was nervous. I'm like, now what? What have I gotten myself into? Am I really ready for this? And then I came to Los Angeles and I thought, the news here was atrocious. One of my first stories was George Michael, right? Caught masturbating in a bathroom. It was the lead story. And I'm like, what? But that's Los Angeles news. Just, just awful. Um, but th they don't prepare you for, for these battles that you have to pick and choose. One of the uh, first specials that they wanted me to do was an expose on Asian sex slaves. Wow. 
And I fought it and I fought it and I fought it and I ended up not having to do it because I was really, I'm like, you want this to be my introduction to the community? That's awful. Um, and then, you know, we were the Lakers station. So each time there was a Lakers game, the news would be just smut. It was all about ratings. It wasn't news. You know, they'd send me to a strip club. They sent me to Vegas all the time. And I used to fight it. They don't teach you that in school. And at one point, I got the reputation for being difficult because I was questioning them. You know, sometimes they just want you to just go out and do the story. And I was told, you know, they hire you to do a job and your job is to deliver. But a good journalist won't just shut up and do what they're told. You're not just going to shut up and read the script. You have to know when to push back. You have to know when to challenge it. Because although we're supposed to be objective, there are writers who aren't objective. There are producers and news directors who aren't always objective. So it's your job to, to question it. Um, and they don't teach you that. Ton of office politics. Awful. Um, they, they, that, you don't, that you can only learn from life experience. Um, and it can be really challenging. So you either you either sell out and just say, you know what, I'm just going to give them what they want. Or you learn to kind of make a spot for yourself where you're comfortable fighting back. You're comfortable saying no to your boss. Now, looking back on it all, um, do you think about the battles that you fought and think that was worth it? Or do you look back and you're like, what, what was I even thinking? And, you know, I should have just let it go because it was just too much. It was, it was so taxing mentally and psychologically for you that you should have just given in. What, what, where do you find yourself on that uh, scale? Uh, I've, and I'm, I can say this because I am where I am now, because I'm so uh, content and happy right now. And when people say happy, I I'm, I'm not sure that everyone, everyone has a different, right, a different definition of what happy is. To me, and it's something that Gandhi had said, and that was, you know, happiness is like when what you say, what you do, and what you think are all in sync. So how many of us say and think one thing, but we're kind of forced to do something else, yeah. right? Um, and so now I'm at a place where I really feel happy. And so, yes, every single one of those battles was worth it. I can tell you that I was uh, often told by my agent that I needed to play, play nice in the sandbox, that I needed to be a little more social with my general manager. That, um, and I'm, 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 maybe that's part of the Vietnamese thing growing up. Like I wanted to call him Mr. and then his last name, right? I have a, I think, healthy respect for authority. Right. Um, and I was asked to go out. I was asked to go have drinks and tequila shots and do all that. And I wouldn't do it. But the girl who did, did go from being a freelance reporter to full-time anchor to, you know what I mean? So um, I, I do think that I was held back in my career. Eventually I got there. Eventually I got the primetime anchor spot and I did it through hard work and merit. Like 
you know, it's not that I went out for drinks with him. And that happens a lot in this business. So it was tough to uh, be true to yourself and know that, okay, well, you know, you're not going to get promoted. For 13 years straight, I worked every single holiday, every single holiday and weekend. But I am where I am now, and I don't, I don't have to look back and feel bad that I kept my dignity, right, and, and did what I thought was right. So, yeah, they were tough. And I'll tell you, sometimes you're going through that stuff. Very often you think to yourself, you know, I should have just kept my mouth shut. I should have just did what they wanted me to do or not complained or whatever, and I wouldn't be going through all this stress. Looking back now, I'm glad that I did because I am where I am now. But it's not always easy to stand up for something that you think is right. You know, you were in it for 20 years, and, you know, at what point did it start to creep in in your mind that this is a, a sort of a corrosive sort of um, industry? I mean, the way you're explaining it sounds really corrosive sometimes, but, like, at what point did you sort of, like, the, the imagery of it being such a, a, a pedestalized version of what you wanted to do in your life started to, to, to crack away? Um, it was probably, <clears throat> I'd say the last 10 years, I could see stuff was changing, but very often, a lot of it changes with management. So you may have managers in there who, you know, I mean, at one point was like, okay, no more suit jackets. And then it was all about low cut blouses, and it was very sexualized. Um, and then, you know, you have a change, um, a change of the guard, and, and it's a, a whole different thing. So I always said to my friends, I'm like, you know what, you guys, I'm going to be like the cockroach. I'm going to survive every bomb they throw in here. So I'm just going to sit back. I'm going to do right. I'm not going to be the social butterfly. I said to my agent, I said, you know what? I don't ask him how his weekend was because I don't care. And it was a very tough battle for me. I said, it's hard for me to stand in there. Like I don't go to the news director's office because to me, that's like the principal's office. Like, I don't want to be in there unless I'm in trouble. And that's how I always treated it. But then you've got people who are like, you know, the brown nosers are always in there and always this. And like, you know that they don't even like the news director, but they're just kissing up. And I can't stand that. Um, so that happened a lot. Um, yeah, there's a very political side too. Yeah. And then towards the end of it, we did get a great, the best news director I ever worked with and for. And then it, it revived my, my passion. Um, and then he got fired. And then it was like, oh, you know, and so the management makes a big, big difference. Uh, but really the, the past, I'd say four years uh, of my time there was a big battle. It was a lot of internal battles up here. Uh, and it was difficult. And one of the difficult things is money is because I made a great living. I made a, a very nice paycheck for talking, right? And that's hard to walk away from. It was very scary to then walk away and and it's like, well, now what, what am I going to do? Yeah. And, and how am I going to do it? Um, but at, at some point in your life, and I think everyone goes through it, especially in my age range, you need to figure out what's more important, like what's up here and what's in here versus what's what's in your pocketbook. What finally made you walk? Well, it was it wasn't a fine it wasn't a one 
time deal thing. It was, you know, really a buildup to it. And um, my kids, I, I turned 50. My kids were in middle school and one was about to go into high school. And one thing that people don't think of is I worked nights, you know, so 2.30 to 10.30 every day during the week. Like I didn't put my kids to sleep, you know, and people take that for granted. Yeah. Um, they, they would accidentally call me by um, the nanny's name. You know, they were learning Spanish without me. Uh, and so I knew that it was a family decision that I had to make. It was for my own, you know, like mental stability and also just to be more apparent and be there for my kids. I knew that they were going to go through those preteen years and teen years that they really needed me. And that was important to me. And I and couldn't I could be happier. I'm telling you, people thought I was weird because all of a sudden I was driving them to like soccer games and I was so happy. I'm like, oh my God, you won't believe it. I did this. And, and that's something most people outside of the business don't normally take for granted. Yeah, I I think the most important thing is to just be with the kids and be present and just be yes. there. Even if you're not mm -hmm. doing anything, just to be there. The, you never, yeah. never get that time back. Yeah, Never get it back. I want to um, go back a little bit to um, an actual news cycle. I've always wondered how, like, I just use the, the the term like when a bomb explodes somewhere to the point mm -hmm. where I'm watching it in my living room. Can you kind of walk me through sort of like that process? Sure. So obviously it's different if it's breaking news, which is what you're talking about. And then there's planned news. And most of what we end up doing is planned news where you go in, you get an assignment, you make your phone calls, you drive around, you meet people, interview, write and edit. I loved breaking news because then I didn't have to do all that because I can talk, right? <laughs> I'm an ad libber. Um, so when it's a, a situation like you're talking about where it's a big thing and something happens, we hear about it. First thing that the assignment desk does is they start dispersing crews. We'll see who's in that area right now. Oh, uh, so-and-so is doing a story, you know, just down the street or so-and-so is doing a story in the neighboring city, break them and then send them over to to um, wherever the, the breaking news is. That's the best, I, I love breaking news. Now, if it's a news story that no one knows about yet, but you know it's a breaking news, a lot of it comes in from tips. So these tips could be from a viewer, okay, who, you know, cause they always love channel nine, they're gonna email someone they know at channel nine or call channel nine. Um, or it could be from a source. Like I have a lot of friends in law enforcement who will call me up mm. and say, Hey, no one knows about this yet, but okay. Love those. That's, that's called getting the scoop. Um, and then you just have to have uh, sources that you trust Okay, you know that what they're telling you is true. And then you as a reporter need to have some kind of pull and uh, what, what's the word? You know, like when, when your producer or your boss, when you come to them with a story, they need to trust that one, you can make it happen and that you actually know what you're talking about. Because sometimes people will feed you stuff that turns out to be nothing. It happens all the time. So you, can, you need to be the person who they can count on. Um, and then you just start making calls and you run out the door. And the one thing that you want is to be the first on the scene and the first to go live. Most of the time, they don't care about anything else. You set up 
put your your mask up, get a live shot out so that they can come to you. Very often you have no details, none. Wow. Most of the details is from back at the station. They will call the cops. They will call the, the spokesman and get the real information. But the most important thing is to get the live shot up and just have a presence. You want to be known as the first on the scene. And then the other thing is, you know, we know that if we're live on something, you're going to stay and watch. Okay. So we'll be first. And then maybe it'll take us some time before we, we, we get the real information to you. But if you're already watching us, we've got you. You're not going to switch over to someone else unless we take a break. That's why you will see wall-to-wall -wall coverage. Right. We will not take a stupid commercial break because the moment we do, what do you do? You switch channels. Uh, so it's all about keeping, you know, getting viewers and, and keeping them. Uh, but on a big breaking news story like that, yeah, as, as soon as you hear about it, you start dispersing as many people as you can to the area. You know, that makes me think about, the again, back to the business model. Um, there's two things that I, I question. Where, if, if, if things are breaking all the time, where do you find, you know, a commercial advertisement to, I mean, isn't that sort of an, an antithesis of sort of making money? Because as a news station, you rely on, you know, ad revenue and, and getting in there to kind of uh, put commercial breaks in. But if you're breaking, there you could be hours wall to wall and not, uh, you know, make money. I mean, so how does right. that? Well, so, but this is what you're doing is you're building your reputation and you're keeping up the reputation. So you, first of all, like what's happening, like if there's breaking news during sweeps period, ratings period, oh my gosh, that's like a gold mine, right? Because you want the numbers, you want people to watch. All the other times really don't matter. That's why there's sweeps periods, right? There's a, a February, May, a little bit of July, November's huge huge book in November, even though they say they're not doing that anymore, they still are. <laughs> but that's how you measure with the Nielsen's ratings. That's how you're able to go to advertisers and say, look at our numbers. You know, we beat channel seven, right. you know, more people watch us. And then that's how you make your, your ad revenue. It really doesn't matter on a day to day ah, basis. Got it. Got it. I would love to spend a lot more time on the news business, but I know that, um, podcast is sort of, um, something I want to know about because you are in that space and you've been in that space for a, quite some time now i kind of watched your evolution because i remember when you're like something big is happening something big's happening you're gonna announce and then it was a podcast but then it sort of like evolved or morphed into what you have today or is it two different things that you you know i i'm curious to to hear your um evolution in you know right after the the the, the news um you know, where did, how did you shift and, and what did you shift into and right. where are we at today? So the, I, I don't know if you're referring to, I was, um, it took a lot of people by surprise that I left the news. And so I was building up to it and I said, I've got a big announcement to make. Yeah. I couldn't yet because it wasn't official yet. Um, so the big announcement was actually leaving the news. After that, I took a little time to just enjoy my freedom of going out to eat, <laughs> taking the kids to practice, you know, that kind of stuff. But I still have this, the hunger that I have, I mean, I've had my fill of the news business, but this thing about connecting and talking to people is still something I have. I, st I have it today. I'll never lose that. People ask me if I miss the news. No, 
I have not watched a single newscast since July 26, 2018. And I was really surprised to see that, oh my gosh, the universe doesn't revolve around us news people. Because when you're in the business, it's always, you're always working. I'm always listening to news. If I don't, I feel lost. Or, you know, what if, like, what if someone dies or someone, you know, of, of notoriety dies and I don't know about it, but you're always working. I see smoke. I'm out with my kids. What's the first thing I do? I call the station. Oh my gosh, you guys, there's smoke over here. And I, I just right into reporter mode, mm-hmm. right? Suddenly I was breathing and I felt relaxed. And I can tell because friends who would see me like maybe a month or two after I quit, they're like, oh my gosh, you look young. I've never seen you this relaxed. And I didn't know I was holding it all in like that. Um, But I still wanted this connecting with people and talking to people. So I didn't know anything about podcasting. I didn't know anything about setting up a microphone. And you know what I loved? I loved doing it by myself. I could have hired somebody. Mm-hmm. I was researching what the microphone, you know, best microphone is. I was researching how to do mixers and how to edit and what, and I spent as little money as possible. Maybe because I'm Vietnamese. <laughs> but, you know, like I spent a lot of money on my mic and then that's it. And then everything else was just, you know, pulling stuff in. You know, if I can get it for free, I'm going to get it for free. I'm going to spend money that I have that I don't have to. Right. So um, the the first and it, it was a great reception. And I'm lucky because I had all these contacts. So I would do celebrity interviews and, and talk about stuff I wanted to talk about. Yeah. And I, I named it Lena Wynn Unscripted because it was just a conversation. I wasn't reading anyone else's words. These are questions I want to ask. And that was a lot of fun. And then I decided to move. And boy, I'm, I broke everything down. You know, 10 years living in a house, looking for a new house. The worst thing you ever want to do for a podcast is what? Stopping. Mm. Worst thing you can do is stop. Consistency is the number one thing you yeah. must keep up with in podcasting. Um, and it was so once you, and like anything else, like an exercise routine, once you stop, it's so easy to stay still. Starting it up again is like starting over again. And then, you know, it's like a year or two later, I had that itch again. So I turned 50 and I'm talking to a friend. And she tells me, she gives me this piece of information, blows my mind. So she tells me that she and her husband are swingers. And I was like, what? <laughs> and and I was really curious. And so, and then I started talking to someone else. I'm like, you know, I was talking to my friend and I couldn't believe it that she's the most regular, normal person you could ever think of. And they're swingers. And this friend goes, oh yeah, my wife and I go to the sex club every, and I'm like, what? And so I was finding out that there are these people who do this and no one really knows about it. So that's how consenting adults, the, 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 the idea for it came up. Now, as you know, anyone with a microphone and a computer can start a podcast, right? Right. Yeah. I, I didn't want to just do that, although that's fine doing that. There's nothing wrong with it. But if you want to make money doing it, you have to take it a little more seriously right? You got to look at how you're going to do it, when you're going to do it, um, how often you're going to do it, 
you know, how long can it really go? Will you run out of guests? That kind of thing. Well, one thing we know, everyone's interested in sex, whether or not they would admit it, right? Even the most conservative person is still interested in sex. So I think the subject matter can pique a lot of interest. My problem was how do I do it and make money? Again, here comes the contacts part. So I have a lot of contacts in the industry, but they're all TV people. One of my contacts has a friend in the radio industry. He um, at one point um, was involved with uh, Cumulus One, Westwood One, um, Cumulus Radio. Remember the Dr. Drew show? I do. Uh, is uh, it called Line. the Dr. Drew show? Love Line. Okay. To me, my dream job would be to work in radio, not, you know, I don't worry about makeup. Sit there and yeah. talk and talk about something interesting. Mm -hmm. So I pitched it and I really just went for it. I'm like, one, I'm either going to offend him or he's going to think, okay, this is interesting. And thank goodness. He's like, tell me more. He flew out from Atlanta to meet with me great lunch. And then it was right. He didn't even realize how fast I could move. I got trademark. Um, and I started interviewing and making episodes. I edited, I had 20 episodes in the can before I even launched Wow! because I didn't want to get behind. Um, and they love it. It is, uh, the outside of Nat Geo. So they have a podcasting network. I signed a contract with them. Outside of Nat Geo, who, of course, they're huge, right? Mine is then the second wow. podcast that they have. We grew so fast. Uh, we grew even faster than their American Idol Memories podcast. Um, so what does that tell you? It tells you a lot of people are going to listen if you're talking about sex. Now, I really was concerned. You know, I talked to my husband about it. Uh, I didn't talk to my parents about it. I still can't. <laughs> um, is once you go there, you, you can't go back, right? Once you go down this road of talking about this kind of stuff, now, although these days I think the lines are blurred, mm -hmm. but I have no interest in going back to TV news. So there's no concern. But I was very concerned about my reputation, my reputation in the Vietnamese community and how the Vietnamese community would 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 see this. Right because I'm, I'm very tied to them. I care. You know, people can say, oh, I don't care what they think. No, I care. I care what the Vietnamese community thinks of me. They've always been great supporters. I don't want to disappoint them. Um, so I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't salacious. It's not, right. you know, it's not TMZ. It's, I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot of information. It's for adults only, but it's in a way that's just curious conversation and getting to know what people are doing behind closed, these are teachers, doctors, lawyers, cops. Uh, and I'm so happy that they trust me enough to share their stories. And I'm so happy people are listening. I mean, we're growing very fast. I'm really happy about it. It, it sounds like the beautiful planet, you know, there's a beautiful planet to TV. It's a nature program. It sounds like you're approaching <laughs> it like the beautiful planet uh, approach, you know, it's right. very mechanical, but kind of not salacious but you're really in there to find out what is really going on back there 
Well, and the thing is, I mean, I have a curiosity about everything and and, and that's what makes you a good uh, interviewer, right? Like right. if you don't care, you're not going to ask the right questions. So I care. I want to know. I'm like, but how do you do that? Or why? Why would you want to see your wife with someone else? I really am curious. I am so curious and ask such good questions. People ask me all the time, are you in the lifestyle, Lena? <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and they'll ask me like five times. Can I answer this real quick? Yeah. Uh, I think it would be very difficult to have interesting questions if you were in fact in the lifestyle. Right. Because so, yeah. because you have to have a curiosity and you have to like really wonder something to ask the questions that the people at home are wondering. Right? Absolutely. So like if I was going to interview a, a journalist, I know it all already. Mm -hmm. I may not ask the right questions that you at home want to know. Um, so so I ask those questions and I'm not shy about asking questions uh, and, and and people think I must be in the lifestyle because I ask such great questions. It's actually just the other way around. It's like, no, I know nothing. And that's why I ask these questions. <laughs> uh, and I know that because I don't know much about Vietnamese people. That's why I, do this. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I really don't know. I really question my own. It's like sort of like uh closeted or I, I don't really know what the history is and the politics or any of it and sort of I'm afraid sometimes of getting in trouble because of the community aspect of it all but what I mean I, I just have to do it I have to just, I just have to get more so I understand where you're coming from it's like um, it, it it's only curious if you're not participating in it mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. you can only be curious if you're not really participating right right what well, my question is, how do people um, actually agree? Because if they have careers and if there are people who are doing like teaching or whatever career they're doing, aren't they kind of afraid to kind of like of go on and talk about this stuff? So let me tell you that a couple of the people that I've interviewed, if I told you what their real names were, you'd be like, oh, okay. One thing that has actually helped me, one thing that's helped me is that they know who I am. They'll look me up. So even if they're not from here, like I've interviewed a lot of people from the East Coast and then Texas, and they look me up and they see who I am and they trust me. They trust that I'm not going to burn them, right? Um, so that's helped me. Um, it's difficult to get someone to open up and tell you something that, I mean, if they were outed, it could ruin them. Yeah. their lives. I can, I'm, if you knew what your, your kids' teachers are actually doing on their free time, you would be shocked. If you knew that your nurse or your doctor goes to sex clubs and you know has sex with other people while their partners are what, you'd be like, what? Yeah. But it's happening, and they're actually happy people. Like, what does it matter what they do behind closed doors? And I'm finding out that people, especially you get off your 40, 45, people in their 50s, they're really, really happy because now they're doing stuff with consent. They've already taken care of the kids, right? They've got a great career going already. Now they get to enjoy themselves. And they're doing it in a way where everyone's consenting and, and you know, no one's jealous. And they're really, really happy. I mean, they're a lot happier than a lot of married people that I know. But this isn't... An audio, uh, this is just an audio podcast and not a visual, like a sort of YouTube 
kind of thing. Right. Although people keep asking me, there are a couple of people who are completely open and I do have video. Um, like there's a, there's a, there's an episode that I'm dropping today where I interview a porn star. So she's in the adult industry. So of course she's not shy. I got video. Um, and I, what I do is I use some of those video clips to promote the, the episode. And at some point I may put it on, on video, uh, on YouTube, but right now it's just audio. The wonderful thing about a podcast that you should absolutely use to your advantage is that, especially for my show, you could be sitting there next to your kid and listening with headphones on. They can't hear a thing. You can enjoy it in the privacy of your own head. Um, so, so it's easier to push things that are maybe not always comfortable. You don't have to be watching TV and have someone walk in, let, let's say, right? So or when people get back to driving long distances for work again, podcasting is going to really, Sorry. really go through the roof. Yeah. How do you... Um... I don't want you to give away the special sauce or anything like that, but anything proprietary. But how do you find uh, guests? Social media. Social media and word of mouth. So let's say I talk to you. You have a great experience. Like they all thank me afterward, which is like I'm thanking them. It's like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much for sharing your story. Because without it, I wouldn't have anything, right? Yeah. But they're thanking me for giving them a platform and making them feel comfortable, letting them share their story. So when I interview someone and they feel great afterward, right, there's always something. Like if you live a secret life, if you've got a secret, there's, there's just something <laughs> about being able to share it. And if you're able to share it without getting in trouble, awesome, right? So when they feel good, they're going to tell their friends, their other friends in the lifestyle. I have people who contact me all the time saying, you know, I'm friends with so-and-so who is on your show and I'd love to tell my story. And so I have no shortage, no shortage yes. of, of guests. And the thing is, I could be doing this for a long time. I'll get old, Okay. But my guests, they'll always be there. Do you remember Dr. Ruth? Yeah, I do. I love her show. Yeah. Yes. How old was she? And she was doing all this stuff. She was like well into her 70s or 80s right? or something like that. Right. Yeah. So I could continue doing this. My guests always new waves of people, new waves of people. Uh, and it, it'll it's never ending. Do you find... Um, or are you ever afraid that some of the stories are sort of repetitive in their structure? Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I do. But what I'm finding out is that you can have a very similar story, meaning the journey that you took. But everyone's story is different. I will tell you that in sometimes listening to my podcast, I'm like, you know, all swingers are starting to sound the same to yeah. me. <laughs> so what do I do? I start um, spacing and finding guests and spacing it so that that's different. So like, you know, the episode today is on a sex worker. And did you know there's like an explosion in sex work because of the pandemic? There are, and sex work isn't just prostitution. People got OnlyFans accounts, you know, people are doing things inside their home and making a lot of money. And they're not all what you would call beautiful people. 
and there's a kink for everyone. There's people are turned on by the weirdest things, whatever you can think of. Trust me, there's someone who gets off on that. Um, so today, you know, sex worker. Next week, I'm going to go. I have an episode on a on a guy who's a, who's a cuckold. Do you know what that is? Yeah, I think I do. Uh, oh, you do. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't. Like yeah. I've seen that word, and the word actually makes me uncomfortable because it sounds weird. It looks like something else, and I didn't understand it. And I always, what I'm always shocked about, Ken, is when I talk to these people. And at first, going in, I'm thinking, okay, he's a little weird. And then I talk to him. I'm like, oh my, he's totally a normal person, mm -hmm. and he makes sound. He makes whatever this is sound completely normal. Oh. Yeah. Of course you love to be humiliated with your by your wife. I can see that. I can see why. And it's amazing. Um but yes, I do I do feel sometimes that this when the stories get to be a little too similar, you know, everyone's visiting a sex club, everyone's fantasizing and they end up doing this. I try to space them out. Uh but because of the nature of the topic, there is something for everybody. I don't even need to get weird yet, but if I should need to, it's I've got them. Yeah. People who are turned off by pain, turned on by pain, uh, everything. I, I mean, I, I hope to never have to like interview men who like to wear diapers because it turns them on sexually. Yeah. But there's that too. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we hear about um, the ocean that that's on this earth, and how we only know just sort of a little bit about the science of uh, marine biology or whatever is happening in the ecosystem of the ocean or i mean space is obvious logically we're not going to know a lot about it but i think the human mind is sort of like that it's that in that domain where sexuality is is just part of our brain but it's such an unexplored uh place well and it's such an important place actually and i think that like, okay, I grew, I never talked to my parents about it. I don't know if you did, but never, never. Even. I still get uncomfortable if I'm watching a movie and people kiss on screen if I'm in the same room with my parents and I'm 51. <laughs> so I never talked about it. Um, and I'm not sure that that's healthy. I mean, so we're all here because of sex, right? That's how we all came to be. Mm. And it's actually something to be enjoyed. It's, it's one of the best things of life. So why not arm ourselves or our children? And I'm not saying talk to children about it because I can't even, I don't, I don't want to think about it. Don't want to think about it. But I want them to have a healthy understanding of what sex is. What's, you know, don't ever want them to feel pressured. I want them to ask me if they have questions. But like I never, even today, I would never talk to my parents about it ever. I'm just not comfortable. And I want my kids to be comfortable, right? I don't want them to be afraid to talk to me about anything. And I was afraid to talk to my parents about most things. So that's one thing that I'm changing. And I think Vietnam as a country is changing too. I think mm -hmm. that there are, um, one of my friends, uh, I think over at Vietcetera, they're doing something called a Gaima. Gaima mm. just means being open, but it mm. also has this double entendre of, you know, being naked. Or, but not really. It's just you know being open, and I think they talk. Uh, they they have talks about sexuality, and it's one of their biggest, uh, I think, podcasts or sec sections in in their um, their write ups. 
Um, right. Which, well, by the way, because Vietnamese people culturally don't openly talk about sex, what better way to reach yeah. them than through a program like that? Right. They're all going to want to listen. Even the even the, you know, the lady out in the, you know, she would still want to listen to it too. I mean, that to her is like, oh, wow. So what a platform. Uh, I, I, I think that's great. And we shouldn't be so ashamed. And, yeah. and it's so, it's so male driven, you know, like, like Vietnamese women aren't supposed to be that interested in sex. It's not proper. That's so wrong. Why deny Vietnamese women such an important and pleasurable part of life? I think that eventually, like if you took a year to really get comfortable with your Vietnamese, mm -hmm. you don't really have to be armed with so much vocabulary to do consenting adults in the Vietnamese language. No, I don't, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know because I don't know the terms and I don't know how to. I mean, how many because, terms are there? There's like a hundred well, maybe that you can learn, you know? I know, but you know, Vietnamese is so like one one meaning can have like twenty words that say the same thing, you know. Like you've probably seen. Have you seen that thing on social media about the word Vietnamese and word chết? No, I haven't. Okay, so chết is chết, nhưng mà qua đời cũng là chết. Right. Um, mất cũng là chết, and so there's so many words, and it depending on the context and who you're talking to and how you want it to come across, which is why I love Vietnamese. Right. Um, but oh my gosh, if you, if I can't talk about business, speaking Vietnamese, you think I can talk about sex well, in Vietnamese? <laughs> well, if you think about it, every sector only has a certain amount of vocabulary, right? And you're just repeating the vocabulary. Let's just say there's a hundred words that you kind of need to know. And then if you kind of like, now you know how to use them, you're just, every story is different, but you're using this sort of the same vocabulary to, I, and I say this because I would... I would love to hear this program in, in, Vietnamese. in Vietnamese. Oh my God, can you imagine? Well, wait a second. Your Vietnamese is very good. I've, I've seen your shows. I'm so impressed that you. as young as you are, you've got such a command of the language. So then now let me ask you, if I was to say turned on in Vietnamese, how would I say that? Mm, that's a good question. You put it <laughs> <laughs> I only no. know the bad ways to say it, and that's not good. Like, See? I know how to say horny in Vietnamese and on the street, but I don't know the sign. Wait, wait, just tell me the letter that it starts with. N. Okay, I know that one word too, but I like, I can't say it. <laughs> I can't, yeah. Right, but but is there a polite way to say there, that? There is. There's, there's a polite, uh, for every slang word, there's always a scientific or a formal way of um, expressing okay. it. Okay, because I don't know if there's a formal way. Nhưng mà nếu mà, nếu mà, mà, Okay, if, if if you speak that way, right? Yes. Maybe maybe you can do it. You can do it. It just sounds so it's so difficult. Who's gonna teach me, Ken? I think. Oh my God, Lena! I think there's plenty of people that you know in this community that can teach you that. I think there's a lot of people. You just need to train yourself for about oh, six months, and you will nail it. I don't know. So let me tell you this: like a lot of the Vietnamese that I know, I learned from traveling with singers. 85% of it I never use because I, I I can't. It's I can't. I've heard singers say stuff that shock me. It's so, to me, it's so vulgar. Yeah. And I can't. I just can't do it. No, but wouldn't it be... 
You nam lok. So I say nam lok. Can yes. you teach me how to talk about sex in Vietnamese? Absolutely. And and here's the beauty of what I think that I'm doing, and I'm not to to my horn. The discovery process is actually the beauty of it because I'll ask my my guests all the time. Um, yeah, the back. In the discovery that we're discovering it, mm. people are also discovering it too. And then because they're hearing maybe like a, a, a Vietnamese person who speaks it as their first language, they're hearing it being perceived from an American angle for the first time. There's a lot of interesting and perspective of that's happening in that way. They're like, whoa, yeah. I put it that way. <laughs> The, the other problem is, though, the Vietnamese people don't want to share this stuff and and um, they don't have the same kind of trust that you will protect and keep them anonymous. I think you'd be surprised, just like you're surprised. I don't know. I, I will tell you, I did have a Vietnamese person reach out to me on Twitter and they're swingers and they said there are a lot a lot of wife swapping in the yep. Vietnamese community. I've heard about it before. I know that a lot of like people who are more well off, we're talking about doctors mostly, yep. who take part in this kind of activity. I bet you none of them will, will, will talk to me because it, they're in the shadows. They've got their own little you know circle. They're not willing to talk about it. So in actuality, when it comes to this stuff, like other people are. Look at it positively. Yeah. And then being a part of that um, early wave of somebody who brings this unique topic. You know what I've just, um, about a year ago, there's an acquaintance on Facebook that I saw. She went into Hanoi, somewhere in the countryside, no, uh, close to Hanoi. There is a nudist colony up there. Yeah, I really. I yeah, she she took pictures from from afar, so she didn't really show. But you could see men were naked, and it was wow. mind blowing. So that's happening. I mean, there weren't like five of them. There were like a lot of them. Twenty, thirty of these men or women walking around. That's in a, awesome. Blown away. Oh, that's so away. cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Man, I wish I just. Okay, I'm gonna talk to I'm gonna talk to I also learned so much from him. If it wasn't for my my music, you know, working for Asia and working, especially him, uh, I've learned so much Vietnamese from him. He, I don't know how we, he's gonna think if I call him up and say, "Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's do it in Vietnamese." <laughs> After we um, stop recording, I will talk to you more about certain people that we know mutually that can probably okay. point you in the right direction. <laughs> okay. And and you do you really think that the Vietnamese um audience is ready to embrace that? Here's the way I look at this. Mm. 95 million people in Vietnam. You only need a fraction of them. <laughs> you only need 1% of 1% to make a dink a ding in the in whatever you're doing. Think about that. And then a lot of people used to question me about like this podcast like 2 3 4 hours like who's listening to this? Oh, well, if you yeah, I've studied the history of like where this format um, has been in America, and uh -huh. I know the trajectory of where it's going. Again, it goes back to that out of 94 million people there, maybe two, three million diaspora, you only need 1% of 1%. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I guess, to, I guess to, we need to talk off camera. <laughs> yeah. Lena, I, I want to um, 
thank you so much for um, taking a, a leap of faith and, you know, speaking with me today. I really enjoyed it and um, learned a lot, as usual, um, with somebody who has so much experience about what they, the work that they do. Well, thank you. And I, I do want to let your audience know that people ask to interview me all the time. And even though I do it for a living, I hate being interviewed. And I especially am, am uh, hesitant to do it for any Vietnamese audience because especially, you know, back in the day when, when I would be interviewed every once in a while, there's something about uh, Vietnamese are very critical, right? Very, very critical. And my, my Vietnamese isn't good enough to speak like we are speaking, to really get into it. It's just not good enough. And I know that people, I'll get hate for it. You know, they say that, you know, nếu mà người Việt Nam, tại sao không nói tiếng Việt Nam? Thì nếu mà nói chuyện mà hỏi thăm hoặc là, you know, nói chuyện chơi thôi, that's fine. Right. Nhưng mà when you ask me about my work, I don't, không có biết những cái danh từ hoặc, I, I don't know how to express it, which is why I don't do it. So, um, I wish I did. And and I, I hope that, you know, more and more people will, will listen and maybe not laugh and, and not be so critical, Right. Like like a, my youngest brother, if people people didn't laugh at him so much, maybe he would have learned a little more Vietnamese. But now, if you try to teach him, he's like, no, 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 yeah. because he's a, he's afraid of being laughed at, right? So yeah, so thank you yeah. for for having me on. Yeah, thank you. I've you know I'm I understand how it feels to to come onto a program that potentially the audience can can be a little judgy. But I think we, um, you know, we, the both of us, we sit here in complete authenticity and being genuine that, you know, we're trying to uh, learn something from, from each other. And I think that that's sort of like the goal of, and that's why I talk about consenting, a, you know, what you do, the, your podcast in Vietnamese. It's just about learning what things that are not being um, public, uh, open public knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, thank Let's make you. it happen. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, <laughs> I hope to talk to you very, again very soon. All right. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran and Javier Proenza. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcasts. Thanks again for listening.